0: Another page that I've turned on my Bible, we're in the middle of chapter 7, and we are just working our way through the book of Hebrews. We're almost halfway done with the book of Hebrews, or we're, we're probably maybe even a little bit over halfway done now, but um, uh, we're, we're going through this book too quick for me, so I hope that you're enjoying it, but um, the book of Hebrews is tremendous. And uh, there's nothing. I was thinking as uh, Pastor Chris was reading the text here. I thought, you know, this is a passage. If you ever go to a, a church and you ever want to, um, you ever want to see what the preaching is like or what the um, what you can expect from the pulpit? Uh, go to Hebrews chapter seven. <laughs> if the pastor ends up preaching himself out of Hebrews chapter seven or preaches, you know, the programs of the church, you know, you're in trouble <laughs> because really, how how do you get to that without going? Uh, to the, really to the heart, to the very soul of what this passage is talking about, which is the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so as Paul says, we don't preach ourselves, but Christ and Him crucified. And so we come now to this section in Hebrews, and really the entire passage of the whole context here of what we're looking at, everything is predicated upon the notion that we need such a salvation that the type of salvation that Jesus provides is precisely what we need. It is contingent, in other words, upon the fact that you and I as sinners have a great need for the redemption and the atonement and the salvation and the blood and the cleansing and the sacrifice that Jesus provides. So the whole book of Hebrews is assuming that we are the type of sinners that the Bible says we are that we are dead in trespasses and sins, that we are condemned under the weight of the law, that our transgressions and what uh, Hebrews will go on to describe, our evil conscience, our dead works, are all of those things that separate us from having access to a holy God. And therefore, Hebrews is seeking to remedy that issue. Uh, You know, um, some time ago, I pointed out that in the entire book of Hebrews, the word gospel is not mentioned. There is not a reference to the gospel in the book of Hebrews. There's a, there's a form of it in chapter 3 when it speaks of good news, but it's not the, not the typical way that uh, the authors of Scripture speak of the gospel. But be not deceived, the entire book of Hebrews is one giant exposition of the gospel. That's what we're looking at. That's the very heart and soul. And so he has already set out before us the fact that what we have in Jesus is a better hope, a better hope. And you saw that in verse uh, 19 and and, uh, where he says there that we have the bringing in of a better hope, which is a reference to the new covenant. But now the author makes it explicit that what he's referring to, what he's talking about now, is a new covenant covenant, and that is preparing the way. The author often does that as he's getting ready to make a major shift in the argument. He kind of throws out a word. He throws out an idea to prepare us to start thinking in that direction, even as he did with Melchizedek and the priesthood of Jesus early on he set forth the priesthood of Jesus. And then we got to chapter 6 and we got to chapter 7 where we really dove into the, the, the high priestly ministry of Jesus Christ. So too here, he just introduces the concept of new covenant. And uh, we're going to see that here. But what this, uh, what this passage tells us is that not only is Jesus bringing in a better hope, but he also brings in a better covenant. But it says that he is the guarantee. See that verse 22? It says that he is the guarantee of a better covenant. And so what I want to observe from this text is that Jesus, there are several guarantees that come with the ministry of Jesus. And I want to look at every single one of those with you. One of them is that Jesus is the guarantee of an endless priesthood. Look at verse 20 and 21 again, because this is familiar territory for us. He says, inasmuch as it was not without an oath, talking about the ministry of Jesus, for they indeed became priests without an oath. That's talking about the Levitical priests. He says, but he, Jesus, with an oath, through the one who said to him, very interesting now, the Lord has sworn and will not change his word, mind you are a priest forever now notice the specifics of the author what he's saying here he he makes a a very very uh specific observation of the old testament uh oath he says that it was it was he excuse me it was the one who said to him that's remarkable that's, a, that's incredible if you, if you see what is being said there, that the original Melchizedekian oath that was given by God, that is, was given to none other than Jesus Christ. Isn't that remarkable? That when the Melchizedekian oath was issued forth in Psalm 110, verse 4, that there was something that was there that was deeper than any practical or historical application or any Davidic application that you can think about. There was actually, there's actually the evidence that we need there. The divine authorship of Scripture is coming through. This was God's way of communicating to His Son, Jesus, that He was to be a priest. The one who said to Jesus, is the way that we can essentially interpret that, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you, you are a priest forever. Now notice he cuts it off there. He doesn't say you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. No, no, no. So what he's trying to focus on now is the eternal, abiding, continual nature of Jesus' priesthood. He gives us an endless priesthood and we saw that that is so important to us because what was the function of the priest after all the function of the priest was to bring you ministry so if you had a priest in Israel his function among many things was to intercede for you it was to teach you it was to officiate at the altar for you in other words it was to do you a great amount of good on behalf of God Turn with me in your Bible to Jeremiah chapter 32. Now, obviously, the new covenant is centrally focused in uh, Jeremiah 33. And he will get there, right? When we get to chapter 8, verse 7 and following, he's going to deal directly with Jeremiah 33, the passage of the new covenant. However... In Jeremiah 32, we begin to hear the preparation for this new covenant and what it all means and what it is all about because what the priesthood, the endless priesthood of Jesus means for us is that he will never cease to do us good. Think of it, brothers and sisters. I cannot encourage you today with anything better than that, that Jesus seeks to do you endless good. <laughs> that's just remarkable. That's just, that's just unfathomable. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore, and he's going to show us those pleasures. But look at what uh, Jeremiah even says here, because that's already precisely what the covenant language of Jeremiah presents to us. Jeremiah 32, verse 40 and 41. Listen to what he says. This is the new covenant. I will make an everlasting covenant with them, that I will not turn away from them to do them good. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn away from me. I will rejoice over them to do them good and will faithfully plant them in this land and all my heart and with, my soul, with all my heart and with all my soul. That to me is remarkable. In other words, all of God is invested in the new covenant. God brought in all of his resources, all of his power, all of his glory is brought in to the new covenant. And that's why he rejoices to do us good. He rejoices to do us good. And now, if you think, well, because we have to deal with some theological issues here. Because if you follow the personal pronouns, you're thinking, wait wait a minute. So so I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Oh. Originally, historically, in the context, the them is who? The them is Israel. The them is Judah, right? Well, we know by the time that you get to the New Testament, the them is no longer speaking of ethnic Jews. The them, brothers and sisters, is you. From every tribe, from every nation, from every language, the people of God, the elect people of God, that is the ultimate them that the Bible is uh, talking about. And this is something that if you don't, if you don't uh, interpret it in this way, you just make a mess out of the Bible. Um, I've heard some pastors go so far as to talk about the new covenant atonement in Isaiah 53 is saying, well, that's a great picture of what's going to happen to the Jews in the future. And I said, huh? <laughs> Isaiah 53 is about me, buddy. <laughs> right? That. Atonement, that justification, that salvation is talking about his people, the church, his elect, believers, those who repent and put their faith in Jesus Christ. So he is going to bring us eternal, everlasting good through the better, endless ministry of Jesus. But now let's get to the, ne- the next guarantee, the guarantee, as it says, of a better covenant covenant of a better covenant, because that's what he's saying in verse 22. He says, so much the more also Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. You see, it's all focused on him. The book of Hebrews is all about the supremacy of Jesus Christ, the magnifying of the person and the work and the worth of Jesus Christ. That's what the new covenant is, the supremacy of Jesus Christ Christ. And his work for us. It's the superiority of the new covenant over the old covenant. It is the fulfillment, my dear friends, of all of God's covenant promises. That's what it is. If you still are there in Jeremiah 32, I want to continue to, 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 to point something out here in Jeremiah 32. Because um, when I say that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of God's promises, I mean all. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. All of God's promises are what? Yes and amen in Jesus Christ. They are fulfilled in him and what he has done. And so even if you take something as intriguing and controversial, let's say as the land promises, because when you come to Jeremiah 32, when you come to the Old Testament, you're going to read passage after passage after passage, that if you only interpret from a... a, a um, from an ethnic historical background, which means it only applies to Israel as a nation, so from a nationalistic, uh, a a patriotic, uh, a sort of uh, ethnic identity nationalism of Israel, then you will miss all of the glorious new covenant riches that it's talking about. That it's talking about. Because if you look on to Jeremiah 32, 42, Go on there. Remember the context of verse 40 is the everlasting covenant that we know uh, Jeremiah is going to equate with the new covenant in chapter 33. But look what is promised here through the new covenant. Look what it's promising. It's promising us that we will inherit the land that we will inherit the land and I'll get to define the land in a minute but in verse 42 it says for thus says the Lord just as I brought all of this disaster on this people so I am going to bring on them all the good that I promised promised them fields will be bought in the land of which you say it is a desolation without man or beast it is given into the hands of the Chaldeans men will buy fields and money and sign and seal deeds uh, it says and call in witness in the land of Benjamin and in the environs of Jerusalem, in the cities of Judah and in the cities of the hill country in the cities of the lowland, and in the cities of the Negev for I will restore their fortunes declares the Lord. How is he going to accomplish this? Through the new covenant. That's how he's going to accomplish it. He's going to bring justice to the nations it says. And so what the What the initial land promises had embedded in them was a redemptive historical fulfillment that points beyond any geographical border and into all of the world. Now, the land promises were initially initially given to who? Abraham. So turn with me to Romans chapter 4 to show you that the authors of the New Testament saw very much what I'm trying to point out to you here, that the land promises have become, if you would, code, a code word for the new heavens and the new earth wherein dwells righteousness, right? Look at chapter four of the book of Romans, beginning in verse 13. For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants That he would be heir of what? Jerusalem? Canaan? Benjamin? Judah? Ephraim? No, no, no. The cosmos, the world, the universe, the new heavens, the new earth. That is what was embedded in the original historical land promises. So it ruptures the imagery through Jesus Christ. And so where does Jesus lead us to? He doesn't lead us to the borders of Israel, folks. He leads us to a new heaven and a new earth where dwells righteousness. That's why Peter says in 2 Peter, we are looking for a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. All of this is contained in the promise of a new covenant. Think of it. The magnitude of what Jesus has done, the better covenant of Jesus that fulfills and accomplishes all of God's promises. Now, what about these promises? And what about the goodness of this covenant? What makes this a better covenant? How does this guarantee a better covenant? Well, we might ask, what is a covenant, right? What is a covenant In the Hebrew, it's the word berit. In the the Greek New Testament, it's uh, diatheke. Two two words that, that speak of the same reality many times. Sometimes in Hebrews, the word berit can be used to speak of an oath that is made between two parties. And so the way that we can say a covenant is, or what a covenant is, is we can say that a covenant is a sacred bond between two parties, many times containing stipulations, commands, prerequisites, uh, agreements that, that, that the parties are subject to. And many times that covenant is sealed with blood. You remember the Abrahamic covenant? What, did, what was it comprised of? It was comprised of a symbol that the animals were cut in two. And then God went through the, the pieces of the, of, the, of the slaughtered animals with a flaming torch and a burning oven, a flaming furnace, and going through those pieces to represent what? Well, in ancient Near Eastern times, what that was a reference to was it was imprecatory. In other words, it was saying, woe to me if I do not uphold the stipulations of this covenant. Let it be done to me as what's done to those animals, slit in two, cut in half, killed, if I do not make good on the promise of this covenant. And so that is what a covenant is. And the new covenant is the ultimate blood covenant. It is the ultimate blood covenant in that we're dealing now with the sacrifice and the blood of Jesus. Through the blood of Jesus, the covenant promises of God came to pass. And so, I want to point out to you several things. This is all Hebrews theology. The, the theology that emerges from the book of Hebrews. Dealing with what makes the new covenant better. Well, number one. The blood. Can we, we sang about the blood. Now let's study about the blood, right? It is no longer the blood of bulls and goats. That are used to make atonement for sins. Jesus sheds his own blood. Blood, chapter 9, verse 12, in order to obtain for us eternal redemption. That is what his blood is. His blood is perfectly effective, perfectly efficacious. The blood of Christ can cleanse. It actually saves because of the moral quality of the offering or the one who is slain. The shedding of Jesus' blood means that he was ostracized for our sake, like the way that the Old Testament goats were put out of the camp. It says Jesus suffered outside of the camp. In other words, he is abandoned. He's ostracized. He's put out, and we are taken in. So it is a substitutionary blood. Substitutionary blood. He is abandoned. We are accepted. That's what it means. And he has... And the blood also binds us, rather, to the covenant of the triune God through the blood of Jesus. Chapter 13 of Hebrews, verse 20, calls it the blood of the eternal covenant. That means we are eternally bound together with God in covenant relationship with him. If you go to the end of your Bible, how does the climax of the Bible end? Well, it ends with God in covenant with his people folks god is a covenant making covenant sustaining covenant keeping god that's what he is he wants us to know him in terms of a sacred bond he wants us to know him in terms of an intimate loving relationship that's what the doctrine of foreknowledge is all about Romans chapter 8, verse 29, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his son. The word foreknowledge does not mean that God knew ahead of time who you were, what you would do, what you would be. It doesn't mean that God knows stuff about you uh, because God knows everything, remember? It doesn't mean that he knows you ahead of time. Oh, I know that this person is going to come into existence, and he's going to repent, and he's going to believe. That's not what biblical foreknowledge is about here. What it's about is God, rather, choosing to enter into an intimate covenant relationship. Because you find in the Old Testament, the word foreknowledge doesn't come from the New Testament, folks. It comes from the Old Testament. And the Hebrew word, the operative word, is the Hebrew word yada which is used in the most intimate of contexts to speak of God choosing to enter into an intimate relationship like a marriage. Like a marriage. And so it is God saying, I'm going to enter into a covenant relationship with this person like Jeremiah. Before I formed you in the womb, Jeremiah, I yada you. I knew you. He foreknew Jeremiah in the sense that God had chosen to enter into a covenant relationship with Jeremiah to be his God and that he would be his his prophet. And so the blood of Jesus is superior to the blood of the Old Testament. That is what makes it better. That is why it's a better guarantee. It is better than If you go back through all of redemptive history, folks, go back to chapter 12 of of Hebrews uh, in verse 24. What are we told? In chapter 12 of Hebrews, verse 24, the author takes us all the way back to the beginning of the Bible. You remember? Where does he take us back to? He takes us back to Abel. He takes us back to Abel. And he says, the blood of Abel already meant something concerning Jesus Christ. But guess what? By the time you get to Jesus Christ, the blood of Jesus Christ, let's go back through all redemptive history until you get to Abel. And guess what? He speaks of better things than the blood of Abel. The blood of Abel speaks of what? Vengeance. Wrath. The blood of Abel speaks of God must punish Cain for what he has done. The blood of Jesus speaks of what? Mercy. Grace, the blood of Jesus means, and it speaks, I put down in my notes here uh, that you know I deviate from quite a bit. But I wrote down in my notes here, the blood of Jesus is homiletical blood. It preaches a sermon of grace when the blood of Abel preached a sermon of nothing but wrath. The blood of Jesus preaches the sovereign grace of God. Just like Abel's blood cried out from the ground, vengeance That the vengeance of God should come down, rightly come down on Cain. But there is a superior blood and that is the blood of Jesus that cries down our justification. Isn't that so glorious? Our God is so good and so loving. That while we were yet his enemies, these glorious truths would be applied to us. That we would have some interest in this that we would have some part, some stake in the glorious new covenant blood of Jesus Christ. But that is exactly how good God is. He loved the world so much, it says. He gave his only son that all, here's a literal translation, all the believing ones would not perish but have everlasting life. Oh, the love of God. How profound, how deep. So part of the blood of Jesus is also the sacrifice of Jesus. And I mention this because in Hebrews, the sacrifice is also replete. It is everywhere. The sacrifice is a sacrifice that cleanses us to the core of our being, the inner self. In other words, it really truly changes us. Religious stuff can't change you. Going to church can't change you. Uh, if you were a Jew in the Old Covenant and you went to the temple, you went to the tabernacle, you offered up the sacrifice, you took the animal to the priest, you did everything that was required of you, that did not necessarily change you. But you know what does change you? The sacrifice of Jesus Christ. When he sacrificed us there, it meant that uh, that, that, that uh, redemption was accomplished. And because redemption was accomplished, redemption was going to be applied. More on that in a minute. But also what makes it more superior is that his sacrifice took place not on earth. It wasn't a sacrifice that was offered in in the literal temple, in the literal tabernacle, but his sacrifice was accepted before God in the heavenly realm. Look with me of Hebrews chapter nine. Hebrews chapter nine, uh, beginning in, Verse 23, for example. Many, many places that Hebrews points this out. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, that is, animal sacrifice, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself. Wow. Not to appear in the presence of God. uh, uh, Now to appear. Oh boy, better get that one right. Now to appear, not not to appear. In the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he wouldn't have need to suffer often uh, uh, since the foundation of the world. But now... Once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. It is a sacrifice that is presented to God in heaven, in his presence. This is how much God accepts the sacrifice of Christ, that the sacrifice is brought into God's presence in the heavenly sanctuary. What was going on on earth was just a mere image. It was just a mere copy. It was just a little shadow. It was just God giving us a, a, a uh, a tangible idea, a representation of the way that it really is in the sight of God's presence. It's, it's hard for us to wrap our, our minds around it, isn't it? God tells Moses, do this, do that, do this, do that, build it like this, build it like that, cut it like this, cut it like that, this short, this long, this, and you're sitting there trudging through all this stuff, right? Reading Numbers and reading Exodus and all this, and you're just going, eh, more curtains, and <laughs> you know more poles and rings, and what is this all about? It is God showing that the vestiges that he was installing on earth spoke of the specificity of the atonement of Jesus in heaven from all creation. You wonder why we're having a conference called the Emmaus Conference? Folks, it's because all of Scripture is about Jesus. And we need to see it for years. I didn't know how to read my, uh, my Old Testament in a Christ-centered way. I'd read my Old Testament and I'd get bored in Leviticus. Now, I get so I don't want to leave Leviticus. I get so excited thinking about Jesus and how much cleansing he provides and how accepted we are even if we're as filthy as the leper. Jesus Christ will take us in to himself. He cleanses us. He provides this cleansing. Now, let's move on because it's not just the blood, it's not just the sacrifice, it is the guarantee of a better covenant also because of the oath that God gave. Now, I want to provide for us a new aspect of this because we know that what the oath is about is that Jesus would continue to be a priest. But remember that the oath, Psalm 110, verse 4, about Melchizedek, going back to Genesis chapter 14, remember that the oath is about a priest king, right? And so the new covenant fulfills the bringing, as it says in in, in chapter 7, the bringing up of a priest king. And what that means is that all of the nations will be ruled by the justice of this king. Isaiah 42, verse 1. Isaiah 42, verse 1 is important because here God prophesies about his mediator that he has chosen. And look at what it says Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. What did Jesus say? The spirit is upon me, right? In Luke. And in the Gospels, in fulfillment of prophecies like this, right? He will bring, watch this, he will bring forth justice to the nations. That is speaking about his rule. Go back to chapter 1 of the book of Hebrews. Chapter 1 of the book of Hebrews, because he has already introduced this same idea. The new covenant priest is also a king who will rule justly. Look at uh, chapter 1, verse 8. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God. Yeah, this is the Father calling the Son God, Theos. Indisputable, in my opinion, indisputable passage on the deity of Christ. And he says here, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The righteous scepter is the, is the scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, he has anointed you. There's the Messiah. There's the Christ, the anointed one. He has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companion. So what is this saying? That one will come who is the companion of God's people, who will arise to be, to be king, to have a scepter, to sit on a throne, and as Isaiah says, to rule the nations with justice with justice. Isaiah 42, verse 6. Oh, this is so exciting because you're reading about Jesus Christ in Isaiah. Isaiah 42, verse 6. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness and I will also hold you by my hand and watch over you. This is talking about the Messiah now, the servant. And he says, and I will appoint you, watch this, as a covenant to the people. As a light to the nations, to open blind eyes. Folks, are your eyes open? Are your eyes open? You say, yeah, well, I'm not sleeping. <laughs> like the person next to me. No, I'm just joking. By the way, I can always tell who's sleeping in here. But anyway, We'll have a meeting about that later. No. Our eyes are open, are they not? We, ha- our, we were blind, and now we see. Why? Isaiah 42. Because it goes on to say, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon. Did he not take captivity captive? Did he not liberate the captive? Those who were in bondage. Are we not free? Yes. And those who dwell in darkness from the prison. And Turn with me to Acts chapter 13, if you would. Acts chapter 13. Because the authors of the New Testament were not shy to connect this passage out of Isaiah directly with the new covenant, Christ. They used it in their preaching, in their evangelism. They used it in their proclamation. It's glorious. Isaiah 13, verse 47. For so the Lord has commanded us, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. See, it's part of the gospel proclamation that the Gentiles will be brought in to the people of God. And that is exactly what this is referring to. In Luke chapter two, verse 32, the author Luke there, he applies it directly to Jesus Christ as the one whose light the Gentiles have seen. It's just remarkable to me. It is also the guarantee of a sure redemption. You know, as an old covenant priest, nothing that you did redeemed anyone. No intercession, no offering, no prayer, no washing, no labor, no no ceremonial washings, none of that. Nothing, as uh, the author says, nothing was made perfect by the law. Nothing was made perfect by the priesthood. But Jesus, he perfects for all time. So go to Hebrews, go back to Hebrews 7 and read with me now in verse 23. The former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. See, their ministry of doing us good ended. Each priest, he had only so long to do good to the people of God. But Jesus, so verse 24 is a big That's a big contrast. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, he holds his priesthood permanently. And and because he holds his priesthood permanently, guess what he is able to do? Therefore, he is also able, dunamis, he has the power to do what? Look, to save forever those who draw near to God through him it is a sure redemption that jesus christ provides for us so that redemption by jesus is not only accomplished in his sacrifice his blood as our priest but it is also applied he is not just able to accomplish salvation for us you know, it's not as if God is setting up the ball for us to punt, and we have to punt it through the, through the poles, and we, you know, we, we score the, 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 the winning point. No, 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 no. No, folks. God does all of it. He is, he is uh, uh, accredited with all of our salvation, right? What did, uh, did Jonah say? Salvation is of the Lord. What did the psalmist say? Salvation belongs to our God. What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians one thirty? It is his doing that you are in Christ Jesus. It is God's own doing. So turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2 just to see this. That, what, that whoever he accomplishes redemption for, he also applies that redemption. That's why we have to believe in the particularity of the atonement. Many people don't believe that, but... That is what the Bible teaches, that the atonement is particular. It is definitive. Um, the old way of saying it is that the, aton- the atonement is limited. Limited to who? To those for whom Jesus accomplished and will apply redemption. He doesn't accomplish redemption and then leaves it unapplied. He doesn't accomplish redemption on the one hand and then leaves it unapplied on the other hand. That is not biblical Look at uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5. Even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, so we lack the ability, right? And then he made us alive, right? God has the ability to make us alive. And it says, by grace you have been saved. Oh, that's wonderful, right? That's a wonderful sermon in and of itself. By grace you have been saved. It is by grace, why? Because dead people can't do anything for themselves. And so what God does for dead people is that he saves them by grace because they are unable. He has all ability. We don't have ability. Verse 6, he raised us up with him. He seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He you say, well, I, I'm sitting at Heritage Grace right now. I'm sitting in a, a blue chair. I don't know how comfortable it is, but I'm sitting in it. And I don't feel like I'm in the heavenly places, folks, with this talking about is your positional, spiritual, what the Puritans used to say, your mystical union with Jesus Christ. As sure as Jesus is sitting on the right hand of the Father, is he sitting there right now? Yes? Yes. Then you're sitting there too. Because you cannot be separated from your Savior anymore. You are inextricably bound to him by covenant, by his blood. You are united to Jesus Christ, inseparable, indissoluble. It's it's stronger than glue. You know that gorilla glue they have at Home Depot? Just sticks to everything. It's stronger than that. It is the bond of an unbreakable covenant. And what what God has covenanted to do he is going to fulfill when you die and when you go to be with god and when one day you will be resurrected what is it well it's just a completion of what's already taken place you're already seated there your body might as well go there (laughs) that's all that's going to happen folks at the resurrection is that your body is going to go where your spirit is already positionally at it is, it's marvelous. It's almost mind-boggling. But don't we need that right now? Don't we need to be reminded of our true identity? As you scroll through the headlines and you see what's going on and you see the dire state that the world is in and at my eschatology, I have a pessimistic view of the future which really means, not for me, but for, the, for this world which means I don't see a golden age of Christianity coming to this age I see that in the next age, but in this age, Jesus says there will be tribulation, trouble on every soul. It'll be so, it's going to be a terrible time. It will be a time when the houses will be divided so much so that members of your own family will turn you in to the authority. And, you know, I don't know all of the details of eschatology, and I'm not one to put up charts and Put up graphs of how everything, you know, the, the fourth hoof on the fifth feet of the of the Antichrist and all that. I don't know. All I know is that in principle, aren't we seeing that now? What about the locust decision? What is that gonna do? What, what is that gonna mean for turning people in? When you're trying to adopt a child, but your teenager who has become homosexual turns you in for child abuse because you dare to tell that child you're trying to adopt that he is a sinner, that if he doesn't repent, he will go to hell. Oh, Christ divides all right in the most particular of ways. What about at work? People are gonna turn you in because you decided to put up a gospel track in your cubicle and they find it offensive and discriminatory And because of the way the discrimination laws are now coming down the pike, you're going to lose your job because you're the person in the cubicle next to you that has a huge rainbow flag on his cubicle, saw your tiny little gospel track, and you're gone, buddy. Because you wouldn't walk around with a rainbow flag wrapped around your forehead. We are living in perilous times. It is so good to be reminded where we truly belong. We don't belong here, we belong in the world to come. I have so much here that uh, to preach on, and but I want to get to uh, Hebrews chapter 10. Please turn to Hebrews chapter 10 with me, because there he wraps it all up, this idea of Drawing near to God, be saved by his power, being saved by the blood of Jesus. In Hebrews 10, beginning in verse 19, the author really brings everything to a head. He wraps it all up for us in a nice, systematic way. Because it includes not only what has Jesus done. This is always the good part of the sermon, right? What do you have to do now? What is your response, in other words? Every good sermon has to have indicative and imperative. Every good sermon has to tell you what is and what must be who we are and how we're called to live. And Hebrews does that because part of this is like you read Hebrews and you're trudging through all this priesthood language and then the practical question is, well, practically, what does that mean at dinner time? And practically, what does that mean? Nine to five, you know, Monday through Saturday. What does that mean? Well, Hebrews is gonna tell us. Therefore, brethren, verse 19, chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, the old cultus is over, is over. Which he inaugurated, see that, that's, uh, that is what is known as realized eschatology. In other words, the age to come breaking into this age through Jesus Christ. He inaugurated for us on our behalf through the veil, not the Holy of Holies, or not not the tabernacle, not the veil that was dangling, uh, blocking the way from the holy place to the holiest of all in the temple. Not that veil, that is his flesh so that Jesus becomes now the typological veil that hung between God and man, separating us without the proper blood being brought as an offering we have no access. We can't go through the veil. We have to rely on one man, one person, one person. You think about all those millions of people that came out of the Exodus, they relied on one person one time, once a year, to go in to actually meet with God, and that was the high priest. But our high priest has ripped his own body apart as a evidence that. The way to God has been finally opened. And it will never be blocked again as long as you're in Jesus Christ. But we have a high priest over the house of God. Let us, here we go. Here's the exhortations. Let us draw near with a sincere heart, full assurance of faith. In other words, what that's saying is no doubting, no wavering. He says, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Sprinkled clean from an evil conscience doesn't mean the sins of a believer. What that means is that you are weighed down, like Christian and Pilgrim's Progress. You have this huge load that you're carrying around in this world. You know your sins are upon you. You know that you are bearing the wrath of God, and it's weighing down on your conscience. And and, and for the most part, people understand that they are accountable, just like Romans tells us. Even if they end up searing their conscience, they're accountable to God, but God cleanses us of our conscience. He takes the load off of our back, and we're free. We're free. He says, we were washed with pure water. Let us hold fast. Another exhortation. Let us hold fast to the confession. You know what that means? That means you have to have an evangelical mean streak in your soul which means there are certain doctrines. We can be the nicest people in the world, but there are certain things. Sorry, that's it. We don't compromise on that point. That's what that means. Hold fast our confession. This is what we believe. This is the body of confessing, confessing truth that we hold to, and we will not compromise that for any reason whatsoever. Even though people all over the place right now, folks, are compromising everywhere, everywhere. Everywhere without wavering for he who promised is faithful and here it is watch this guys let us consider how we may stimulate one another to love and good deeds and what I take that to mean verse 24 is the way that I take that to mean is we all need to be stimulated right We all need daily encouragement, daily admonition from one another. Some of us are better at dishing it out than others. Some of us are better at receiving it from others. But we all need it nonetheless, and God knows what you need. You do not know what you need. God knows what you need. And what you need is daily admonition. Stimulate one another. You see a brother, you see a sister, and you see they're not really doing so good in the faith. You need to go over there, encourage them, stimulate them, get in their life. But, but what do you go over there with? You go over there with the glorious truths of the new covenant. So we got to get really good at reminding ourselves as we put our arm around a brother or a sister and we say, Let me remind you that the veil has been torn, brother. That you have access, that there's no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Stand up! Live free, Live in light of the glorious new covenant that Jesus inaugurated through His body. He died so that you can live. Now go live for the glory of God and don't let the devil beat you down into a corner into a corner where you're just going to huddle up in the fetal position and die. No, that's not the life of a Christian. We believe in a resurrected God. I remember I was depressed once and Trisha tells me, didn't Christ rise from the dead? Hello? She's real compassionate about it. (laughs) But it's exactly what I needed to hear. Jesus is risen, therefore get out of bed and be a Christian again. It's that simple. The final thing that he says here is very practical as well not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, ecclesia, not assembling this coming together as a church. I can tell you I am so grieved in our generation of all the anti-institutionalism that is all around. Maybe it's because I do so much college ministry. I see it all the time, right? Uh, Are you a Christian? Oh, yeah, yes, sir. Uh, Where do you go to church? Well, I don't do that. I just kind of read the Bible on my own. Well, what about those passages in the Bible that talk about going to church? Yeah, well, you know, I don't like church. <laughs> Didn't I tell you? I just met a young man at Lowe's and I was buying something, and uh, Trisha, of course, the bold one, starts uh, witnessing to him and asks him, you know, all these things, and and he says, he says, yeah, I don't go to church, and he was talking to us, and he says, I don't like pastors, and I thought, oh, oh sorry, yeah, give me give me my receipt, I'll be out of here in a second. <clears throat> so, you know, but that that just encapsulates the spirit of this age. Anti-church, anti-institutional, anti-authoritarian, anything that, 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 that demands submission. But I have news for you folks, the Christian life is all about submission. We are to be submitted to one another, Ephesians chapter five. We are to be submitted to our elders, um, that's everywhere. Um, to our leaders, Hebrews chapter 13, 1 Peter chapter five. All over the place, we are called to submission. Wives submitting to their families, children or to their husbands, children submitting to their parents, believers submitting to, the, to the, uh, uh, the authorities, the government. As far as we can, anyway, right? There's a line there, too, though. But the, the, the Christian life is one under submission. I mean, look at Jesus. You want to know what the Christian life is all about? Just follow the footsteps of Jesus the man who had all authority and power invested in him lived the most submissive life on earth he said render to caesar what is caesar's <laughs> what you're almighty god just speak the word and caesar is incinerated no no the hour has not yet come give to caesar what is caesar's tell you know it's going to be very short lived anyway The present tyranny that we're living under here in America now, which is just mind control and all of those things, is very short-lived, folks. The world has its reward, right? Hollywood has its reward, right? Uh, Liberalism and liberal judges and all of that, they have their reward and they better enjoy it now because it's gonna be gone before they can blink. But one thing that will never be gone is our intercessor. So let's end with that. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. Therefore, he is also able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus is our intercessor. He pleads on our behalf. He stands by his own being, his presence, his person. He is our mediator. He is the embodiment of the access that we need to God. And you know what he prays for us? He prays not, you remember uh, John 17, what is it? uh, John 17, uh, I think it's verse 17, 16. Jesus says, oh boy, I better get there before I make a mess out of it. It's too good because it's too relevant to where we're at. Verse 15 John 17, 15, listen to Jesus interceding for us. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. So Jesus is interceding on our behalf, and what is his intercessory uh, uh, ministry about? Our temporal, physical needs? In a sense, he's, he's here to take care of us from A to Z. But more important than temporal deliverance from physical and temporal evil is the spiritual adversary of our soul, the evil one. And so what, the, what in essence Jesus is saying here is that he has his priorities straight. He may not deliver you from persecution. Just ask the many Christians that have died at the hands of ISIS recently. He may not deliver you from oppression. Just ask the millions of Christians living in China today but he will deliver you from the evil one so that Satan will no longer have mastery over you. You no longer belong to him. He is no longer your slave master. You are no longer held captive by him to do his will. You are free. That is a much, much better intercession, is it not? Amen. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we thank you so much for the victory that we have in Jesus. Thank you that we can sing glorious anthems that are true because of your word and because of what Christ has done for your people. And so, Lord, let us walk out of here with that that phrase ringing in our ears. Let us. Because you call us now to a high standard of living. To a high level of spiritual communion and worship and fellowship with God and man and so Lord I pray that you would help us to even in this give us the power give us the strength Lord we cannot do it in our strength in our own strength Lord we are nothing but in your strength we're able to obey to the glory of God bless your church now in Jesus name amen